Hey, Junior here. Thanks for hitting play. If you grew up in church, you've probably heard this story before. Chances are, not like this, though. Ah, this is going to be so fun. Scripture is so good. Let's go there together. As the lens of Scripture zooms in on Exodus chapter 32, he's back. Moses returns to a familiar hill, Mount Sinai. The last time he was here, he led sheep. This time a nation files behind him. See, it was, it was just along that ridge, down in that ravine, where Moses ran across the burning bush. And it was the burning bush, God, who replaced the sheep with a nation. It was here Moses' life was changed. It was here that Moses first met God, and it's here where God wants to meet with Moses again. As the wilderness grows dark, the people quickly make their camp around the mountain. The men light their torches and use the little light to piece together their shelters. The moms lay down with their kids on makeshift lumpy beds as the dads quietly try to seal off the tents to keep insects and snakes and rodents from making their way in. As the harsh Middle Eastern sun paints a golden sunrise the next morning, the people step out of their tents. Mount Sinai casts a very welcome shadow over a portion of the camp. And there in the mountain, old Moses is hobbling his way up. Where's the old man going? Why? Not long after, the top of the mountain becomes consumed with fire. The mountain trembles. Their leader, 80-year-old something Moses, is up in that fire. Days go by. People start talking. What's going on? Last we saw of Moses, he was hobbling up the mountain. How's he eating up there? How's he drinking water up there? And hydrating himself in this harsh desert. Actually, how's he surviving in the fire? He's got to be dead. He's got to be extra crispy at this point. So what do we do now? Like, is this the promised land? It's a pretty big letdown if it is. I don't see any milk and honey flowing anywhere. This can't be it. Let's just keep waiting for him. More days go by. Chapter 32 brings us in. When the people saw that Moses delayed, delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. Now something to understand, gathered themselves to Aaron in the original Hebrew means they came against Aaron. There's some, there's some conflict here, there's some tension going on. And here's why this is important. Aaron is not a strong leader. Aaron tends to follow popular opinion. He wants to be the nice guy, which dooms societies and organizations and churches. And we're going to see some extremely poor, cowardly leadership play out here in chapter 32. But it starts with the people coming against Aaron. And instead of Aaron standing up, instead of Aaron leading out, instead of Aaron doing the right thing, not the popular thing, being the bad guy and standing against them, Aaron just kind of wants to make peace, smooth things over, and make everybody happy with him and be the nice guy. Recipe for disaster. We're going to see that play out throughout chapter 32. Let's put that aside for just one second. There is a principle that is lodged here in this verse, a principle that plays out every day in our lives constantly. Verse 1, if you look at the beginning of the verse, it's not on the screen here, but look at the beginning of the verse. Verse 1 says that Moses is what? You just say it. He's delayed. Moses is gone. God seems gone. At this point, it's been 40 days since Moses has left. Moses went up on the mountain, fire consumes the mountain, fire consumes Moses, and it's been like that for 40 days. That's a long time in this context. That's a long time to be in a fire. 
So to the nation's defense, their leader seems dead. God hasn't moved. What's going on? Last four, month, four months, God's been moving through the wilderness, and they've been following. They've been getting to know this God of theirs, and then God just stops here, and he hasn't moved. You ever feel that way? God's just like, gone, stopped, stuck. You felt this. You know, you've been praying for that thing, and, and you know that thing, that spouse, and they're not coming around. And you go to God and you pour out your heart. You, you so badly want your spouse to know the love and the realness of, of their creator. But it's like there's, there's no response. It's like you're stuck up there. Or you want your marriage to be fixed so bad. God, please save my marriage. Not much is happening. In fact, the marriage just seems to be getting worse. Or you go to God for a relationship. Always the bridesmaid, never the bride. And the years pass, and it's hard not to feel like your friends are living the life you thought you'd have. And loneliness kicks in. And you go to God, and you pour your heart out. Nothing's changing. It's like he's just stuck up there. Or you want a baby. You always saw yourself as a parent, but it's not happening. And every time a friend gets pregnant, you smile and you cheer, but deep down you ache. It's like God doesn't notice your pain. Maybe it's a wayward child, maybe it's a job, maybe it's a health issue, and no matter how often you bring it to God, it seems like you're just staring at an empty mountain, like something's up there, but nothing's happening. It's the people of Israel here. It feels like God's just delayed. He's not doing anything. It's stuck. And this is the principle that plays out in the text, but it also plays out in your life and in my life. I wonder if you're there right now. When God delays, we either deepen or detour. When God delays and we're waiting, we either deepen or we detour. You know that old saying, absence makes the heart grow fonder? Whatever. <laughs> I had a long-distance relationship once. Absence did not make the heart grow fonder. It made the heart go wander is what happened. There's probably a girl in here who's like, my boyfriend just went off to college. You're telling me he's not going to work? <laughs> oh, it's going to be great. Absence makes the heart grow fonder. He's different. In in all seriousness, though, every time we wait on God, waiting for a relationship, waiting for a job, waiting for a baby, waiting for for health, waiting for a kid to come around, every single time we wait, my guess is you're there right now, when you wait, there is a fork in the road in your waiting room. You either deepen or you detour when you hit a waiting spot. As I wait, am I going to deepen in my relationship with God? Am I going to press into God? Am I going to grow my faith? Am I going to walk in obedience, even through the confusion, even through the pain? Am I going to deepen or am I going to detour here? Force things and take things into my own hands. See, God uses the weight to grow you. The enemy wants to use the weight to steal you. Your waiting room is a very vulnerable place because every time you wait, you're in a position to grow, but you're also more susceptible to sin. If God's not going to show up, Well, then I better force things, find my own way, and I'll just detour here. And the enemy offers some amazing-looking detours. Eh, relationship not happening. What about this over here? It's not what God wants for you, but it's something. Looks good. They'll satisfy that craving, and your wait will be over. Spouse isn't coming around. Marriage is a total drag. You feel like you're wasting your years in this marriage. Been waiting long enough. Just get out. Leave. It's a way out of the waiting room. It's a detour. If God's not coming through, we force things, look for ways out, we detour. It's one or the other every single time you wait. Are you going to deepen or are you going to detour here? Israel chooses to detour. Make us some gods, Aaron. 
God's not going before us anymore. He's stuck up on that mountain. So can you make us some gods to go before us? God, stop moving. We're done waiting. We're taking the detour. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. And at first read, we think, attaboy, Aaron, make them pay. Get them. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it. Now, this is interesting. We're going to come back to this. So just remember that fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. You ever wonder, like if you read the Bible or, you know, if you grew up in church, you ever wonder, well, what's up with the calf? I mean, if I were to make a golden god, which I'm not going to because we shouldn't do that, but if I were to do that, I'd make like, a, I don't know, a lion, a T-Rex. Like, geez, I'd make a kangaroo before a calf. Like at least kangaroos can box. No sports team is called the baby cows. Watch out for the Chicago baby cows. Like, what, why would you choose a calf to represent your religion? And this decision keeps on popping back up later in history. I mean, Israel has some evil kings that try to get people to turn away from God toward the stupid calf. Like, what is up with the calf in the Bible? Well, there's a couple reasons, but the main reason is, is the neighbors, their neighbors were worshiping calves. Like, here's a picture of uh, some calves that are etched onto some rocks. This is actually not far from Mount Jabal el-Laws that we talked about uh, earlier. We don't know if this is the Israelites who sketched this on the rocks or the Canaanites in the area who, who did this. We're not quite sure. But one of the main Canaanite gods was a calf. Also, Egypt, where they just came from, they had a baby cow god. See, there's this theme in Israel's history, and it's the same theme that you and I have in our own lives, is, is we want to be like our neighbors. We don't want to stand out. God wants us to stand out. God wants you to be different. God wants you to be holy. That's set apart to be different. We don't actually want that. We'd rather fit in. Our eyes scan those around us, and we try to fit into that mold. You remember, God is taking Israel through the wilderness in the same way he's taking you through this process of sanctification to make you more like Jesus Christ, to get you to stand out more and more and more. You should be different this year, more different this year than you were last year. He's setting you apart, but there's always this pull, no matter how stupid the trend, to fit in with the majority, to hold a popular opinion. We I mean, just think about how asinine this is. Picture what's going on here. Yahweh has struck their enemies with plagues. Yahweh has split the Red Sea. Yahweh appears in a fire at night and a cloud during the day. Yahweh has given them victory over the Amalekites. Yahweh made it rain food. Yahweh made water rush out of a rock. Like the Israelite God, Yahweh, is pretty awesome. He strikes fear in the region. He is real. He is near. He is obvious. He's right there in the mountain making it tremble. But the Israelites go, yeah, but the baby calf. Everyone's got a baby calf, so that's cool. Also, gold is cool. We'd love to have a golden baby calf. And we read this and we go, a bunch of idiots. That's what the self-righteous part of us thinks, though. The honest part of me thinks, dang it, that's me. It's you. It's us. God has made himself real to us. He offers himself to us. He says, draw close to me as I draw close to you. He takes us from the mire and sets us on solid ground. But how often do we find ourselves drawing close to that which kills us? The rat race, the image, the addictions, the pleasures, the selfishness, the toxic friendships that we, that we have. Instead of pursuing that which sets us apart, pursuing spiritual growth, pursuing scripture, pursuing serving, pursuing sacrifice, pursuing submission and giving and worship. Instead of pursuing that which sets us apart, pursuing holiness, we just want the golden calf. We want what others got. Regardless of how miserable they are, we want what others have. That's what's happening right here. 
Here's the thing, though. If you grew up in church, you might have missed this as a kid. I missed this as a kid growing up because it's just taught a little bit differently to me. But, but, but this is true. Israel is not completely turning away from God toward idol worship. They're not completely turning away from God, at least in their own heads. This is really interesting. I've missed this before. I don't want you to miss it. Look at this. This is when Aaron saw this. He built an altar before, the, before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Which is, the Lord translates as Yahweh here. I put Yahweh because, so every time you see capital L-O-R-D in, in your Bible, the original word was Yahweh. I don't know why translators translate the name of God. The name of God is Yahweh. For some reason, they've taken it and, and they make it Lord. I'm not saying it's like a sin or wrong. I just like to use God's name, Yahweh, in Scripture. But you think about what's going on here. Look at this line of thinking. We got the golden calf glimmering in the sun before us. But hey, tomorrow, we're going to go worship Yahweh. Again, the self-righteous part of us thinks, so stupid. That's kind of how it was taught to me as a kid. You know, look at how dumb this is. They're, you know, they're worshiping the golden calf. But again, how often do we do this? Friday night, Saturday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, all the other days, we got our golden calf glimmering. Our image that we're pursuing, our pursuits, our attitudes that we hold on to, those secret pleasures, we are taken in by them. But hey, on Sunday, I'll worship Yahweh. I'll come into church, I'll sing a few songs, I'll listen to some sermon, I'll take some communion, I'll throw some money in the bucket, and I'll consider myself a person of God. But then I'm going to go back and chase the calf tomorrow. Oh, we, we, pile, like, we pile on Israel for this story. But this is us. And they rose up early the next morning. So this is the day that they're worshiping Yahweh. Look, look, look how they worship Yahweh. The next day... They offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings again to Yahweh. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Rose up to play. What does that mean? Some translations, maybe your translation says revelry. It's used only a handful of times in the Old Testament. What revelry or rose up to play means is uh, to play at sex, to caress sexually, bump and grind, if you will, foreplay leading to a release. Not within a committed marriage, but outside the confines of marriage. So the next day, the day that they're worshiping God, they drink, they're tipsy, and now they're in this foreplay orgy. It's an orgy rave. They've seen Egypt do this. The Canaanites do this. Kind of looks fun. I mean, come on, of course there's a draw to this. It's one way to grow your religion. Hey, let's just all have sex as a form of worship. It's a very, it's a very selfish, selfish act. If I can get a sexual release out of my worship. So of course there's this draw to this. Israel likes that. So you picture what's happening. Don't picture the sex, but... Picture what's happening here. God is this all-consuming fire on the mountain. The mountain is trembling. Below, there's this golden calf glistening in the sun as God's people swap partners while they worship Yahweh. You go back to verse 5. Hey, we're worshiping Yahweh. They still see themselves as God's people. What we're seeing here, and this is really important, what we're seeing here is something that we call secretism. Some people call it religious assimilation. It's more popular, known as syncretism. Israel is going to try to worship Yahweh either with the bull or they're just going to add the bull into their religious ceremonies. Oh, they still see Yahweh as Yahweh. He's right there on the mountain. He's consuming fire. He's making the mountain tremble. But they want to worship him their way. Polytheism, sexual releases, and pagan rituals. They take God's commands and they mix it with the world around them. That's what syncretism is. From an outsider's perspective, we read this and we go, what a bunch of bull. Huh, literally. But come on, we can't do this. But again, we do this. But we take our Christian values and we mix it with the world around us. 
For example, I don't want to pick on the Catholic Church, but this is just an example. Early in church history, the church, Catholic Church specifically, would adopt pagan rituals of whatever area they were in in order to um, attract new converts. So they would, they would absorb the religious ceremonies of those around them. So for example, Mary worship in the Catholic Church. Where does Mary worship come from? Scripture doesn't tell us to pray to Mary. Scripture tells us to pray to the Father through Jesus. Mary isn't a deity in Scripture. In fact, once when Jesus was teaching, someone interrupted Jesus' teaching. He said, bless your mother for raising you. Like, if there's a time to deify his mom, it would have been right there. Instead, he said, sure, but bless those who do God's word. Even more blessed are those who do God's word. Like, he didn't put his mom down, but he didn't give her divinity. And don't get me wrong, she's an amazing woman. God chose her for a special job, raising Jesus. She's someone that we should look up to. She's someone that we should admire. We don't pray to her, though. Scripture forbids us to pray to Mary. So why does the Catholic Church teach to pray to Mary and deify Mary? Syncretism. A lot of Mary worship comes from when the Catholic Church was trying to get new converts from religions who had female gods. All right, we don't have a goddess like these religions in this area, so if we're going to convert them, if we're going to absorb them, we'll just make Mary a goddess. we got a goddess over here too, and they'll have an easier time converting. That's syncretism absorbing the popular trends around them. Again, I'm not just picking on the Catholic Church. It happens today. I'm going to make some enemies here, but I'm just going to say it. How many churches today promote the cross or the rainbow? Often the rainbow being more prominent. Now, we've, we've talked about homosexuality not long ago. God loves gay people. My goodness, you're welcome here. If you are same-sex attracted, I'm so glad you're here. We love you. We will walk with you. You are safe with us. But a lot of churches today are affirming that which Scripture forbids. They even promote it in order to fill seats or appease a politically correct agenda. It's taking our faith and mixing it with the popular opinion around us. That's what syncretism is. But we don't just do this corporately. We do this personally. Not so obvious, but we all do it. Grab our faith, and we mix it with our opinions. Grab our faith, mix it with politics. Grab our faith and mix it with a social movement. Grab our faith and mix it with sin that we don't want to give up. And we just kind of wink at it and justify it. That's what's happening here with the bull. Let's bump and grind around the bull. We'll share lovers. We like that. And we're having a feast to the Lord. We're just going to have our cake and eat it too. It gives us point number two in the text. It seems like an obvious point, but we've got to talk about it. Following God our way isn't following God. It's something Western culture really needs to hear right now. Following God your way isn't following God. If we were to get into a time machine right now, socially distanced, of course, we get into a time machine, and we go back in time, and all of us enter camp at the bottom of Mount Sinai, and we run into camp screaming, stop worshiping the bull. You can't do this. This isn't right. They would say something like, what are you talking about? We're having a feast of the Lord. Like, if God moves up there, great, we'll follow him. But he's not doing anything. We're done waiting, so we had to do something. We're going to do both. We're going to do what we want, what we've seen around us, and we'll do what God wants when we want to. Sure, it sounds absurd, but don't you think it's a little like when God doesn't answer our prayer the way we want him to? When God hasn't brought me a mate yet, I'm feeling lonely. I know what God says about being unequally yoked. I know I should marry somebody who loves Jesus so that we can walk with Jesus together, but God's not doing anything. And there's interest over here. And they want nothing to do with following Jesus. I know it's not right, but I'll do both. 
I'll just have to do it my way. You know, marriage isn't fun. Can't stand my spouse. Feel like I'm wasting years here. God's not doing anything about it. He's not changing him or her. I know God's thoughts on divorce, but I'm not leaving God. I'm just leaving them. I'll still follow God, just not here. i try to do both here. Her finances are tight. Been asking God for relief. It's not coming. Could cheat a little bit over here. Nothing crazy. I still love God. Just, I just got to figure this out here. How many of us are living lives banking on God co-signing to our bull? I'll marry this person even though I shouldn't. I'll leave this person even though I shouldn't. I'll hide this sin even though I shouldn't. I'll harbor this attitude even though I shouldn't. But I still follow God. I mean, he's loving, right? He'll forgive me, right? He'll co-sign. That's not following God. That's personal syncretism. That's worshiping the bull. That's a detour. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying God isn't forgiving. I'm not saying there isn't redemption. But taking a detour with that in your back pocket, and I've talked to a lot of people who are like, I'm just going to do this because, you know, God's forgiving. That's very dangerous. That's not following God. In fact, God deals with that very seriously. I mean, you look what happens here. You've got your Bibles in front of you. Verses 7 through 14. God gets angry. He says, I'm going to kill them all. I'm going to kill all of them right now. I'm, my fire here at the top of the mountains is just going to sweep down and burn everybody up. And Moses begs God not to. And Moses comes down from the mountain. Moses just throws down. Look at your Bible. I've got to read this. Verse 19. As soon as Moses came near to camp, he saw the calf and the dancing. Moses' anger burned hot. He threw the tablets from, out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made, and he burned it with fire, ground it into a, par- a powder, scattered it on the water, and made the people of Israel drink it. So the, the calf was likely uh, made of wood overlaid in gold, so it could be burned. And so it says that Moses made the people drink it. It's a tough translation. Uh, looking at the original Hebrew, it doesn't look like Moses lined everybody up. Now, you know, now you drink the bull. Likely what happened is he just threw the ashes into the water supply, so eventually it was consumed by the people. Like, the calf is completely desecrated. There's no remnants. It's not the only punishment, though. If you keep on reading through that, 3,000 people are killed for this. 3,000 people, which sounds harsh. And for some of us millennials, we go, well, it doesn't sound like the God I worship. God is a God of justice. God gives life. He can take life. And God is cutting the cancer out of the group. That's what he does with us. It often hurts. God grows us. He refines us. And then that sometimes hurts. But look what happens next. It's almost funny. It's sad, but it is funny. It says, And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? Now, Moses is a strong leader. He's going to confront, he's going to stand against the entire nation. Meanwhile, Aaron's afraid of Moses now, and Aaron starts saying, Well, it's, it's, it's the people. They're really bad. And I just caved. And then look what he says here. This is crazy. See, so I said, and this is Aaron talking, So I said to them, Any who have gold, take it off. So they gave it to me. I threw it into the fire. And out popped this baby cow. Sounds like my children. I didn't kick my sister, Dad. I just flung my foot and they were standing there. It's really their fault. It's Aaron. It's a terrible liar. I got a kid who's a terrible liar. I won't say her name because she's my oldest. <laughs> but she tried to lie a lot when she was about two years old. Just terrible at it. And so every time she lied, all you got, I mean, knew it was a spanking. And so she just gave up on it. I'm glad she did. Aaron should have gave up on it too when he was two years old. Because it's like a two-year-old lie. And I wish he could have been there. You picture this. Moses is ticked. You know he's got the dad vein going down the middle of his forehead, waving his stick, old man strength, just slamming the tablets on the ground, gravelly voices booming. What did you do, Aaron? Uh, it's the people. 
They brought me the gold. I threw it in the fire and well, popped this calf. That's your story. It's a terrible story. But again, for as much as we want to make fun of Aaron, this is us. In our own sin, we have all made ourselves the good guy or the victim in just about every situation. This is something I try to remember before confronting someone. I always try to think, okay, they're going to see themselves as the good person or the victim in this. Because it's what we do with ourselves. In the 1930s, notorious killer, two-gun Crowley, was a killer who terrorized New York. He was harbored up in an apartment, and police were surrounding the place. As lead filled the apartment, two-gun Crowley knelt underneath a desk, and he wrote a note. He wrote, to whom it may concern, under my coat is a weary heart, but a kind one, one that would do nobody any harm. He stuffed this into his coat, and with that letter in his coat, he went outside, killed a couple cops, stole their car. After being caught later on, his last words, right before he was executed, his last words were, this is what I get for defending myself. He saw himself as a good guy, as a victim. This is what we do. We all do it. Al Capone, public enemy number one, murderous reign of terror. He genuinely saw himself as a public benefactor. A good man, misunderstood, often a victim. This is how you see yourself. This is how I see myself. can't tell you how many times I'll have meetings with people They'll sit down about their marriage, sit down about conflict in, in, in the workplace, they'll sit down about conflict in their families, with in-laws, and both sides see themselves as the good but misunderstood victim. And it never gets better. And they never grow. And they just continue this miserable cycle. That's Aaron here. Aaron collected the offering. Aaron, you remember the verse earlier? Who fashioned it? Aaron fashioned it with a graving tool. Aaron was the leader during the sex play and the worship. But Aaron sees himself as the victim, the good guy. I took the gold through the fire. You know, I don't know. And it's that mentality that will keep Aaron from growing. And it's that mentality that keeps you from growing and deepening. It's principle number three right here in the text. In chapter 32, moving forward requires taking responsibility. You're going to move forward in life. You're going to move forward mentally. You're going to move forward spiritually. You're going to grow. You've got to take responsibility. Some of us in this room haven't grown in years. Years. You've been in the same spot in life. Actually, the scary part is you look back to yourself a year ago, five years ago, you think, ah, I feel like I was just more passionate with God five years ago than I am today. Floundering, often miserable, confused. You don't understand why. You haven't grown. And it's because this principle right here is playing out. There's something you're not taking responsibility for. There's something that you're blaming others, you're deflecting, and you're seeing yourself as the victim, yourself as the good guy, instead of owning up and growing. And until you own up, your marriage is going to be that way. You're going to have that same problem keep popping up in your marriage until you take responsibility. You're going to suffer relationally until you take responsibility. You're going to be stuck until you take responsibility, because moving forward requires taking responsibility. Moving forward spiritually, moving forward mentally requires taking responsibility for that which you need to take responsibility for. But the tricky part is, it's likely an area of your life you just keep excusing and seeing yourself in the benevolent light. I mean, how many people, scratch that, how many of us 
are miserable, stuck, having the same problem in our marriage, having the same problem with our attitude, having the same problem with our anger, having the same problem relationally. Every time there's conflict, every time there's an argument, every time you have that attitude, we're the victim, I'm really the good guy, it's their fault that I'm like this. Moving forward is going to require taking responsibility. Let's just cut to the chase. What do you need to take responsibility for? For far too long, Christians have read this story. Again, this is how it's taught to me. We just pile on Israel. Ah, what a bunch of idiots. They're making a golden calf. But we're doing the same thing. Been waiting on God. Instead of deepening, I'm going to detour. And as a result, now i got sin in the camp. And I'm going to live with it. And I'm going to justify it. I'm going to deflect any time somebody goes there. And I'm going to excuse it. Maybe it's a purity issue. Maybe it's an unsubmissive heart. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's envy. You know, you just don't like somebody, can't really tell why you don't like him. Well, it's envy. Maybe it's an attitude, but you got the same problem that keeps on popping up in your life over and over and over, and every single time we just excuse it and deflect. We're trying to hold on to that which is hurting us, but also as we say, but I'm still following God over here. Yeah, I got that attitude. Yeah, I got that anger issue. Yeah, that thing in my marriage keeps popping up. But I, hey, I'm following God over here. I'm going to have a feast of the Lord tomorrow. But until we take responsibility, we will be I, I hate ending this way. This is a struggle going into this weekend. It's like, do I really have to end this way? Like, how, how can we make this more palatable? How can we leave with like, more of an encouraging word? Like, I'd have to change the text to do that. Because this is how the chapter ends. Again, I hate ending this way, but that's how the chapter ends. 3,000 people die. Moses smashes tablets. Aaron is exposed. It's a heavy ending, but it serves as a warning. And I don't want to make this warning more palatable for us. This is serious. Sin in the camp is serious. The sin you deal with that keeps popping up over and over and over that you keep justifying, that's very serious. Yeah, we can justify it. We can try to paint ourselves as the victim or the good person. It's their fault. I know I'm an angry person, but they make me angry. But the reality is, so many of us are just stuck in life. We're living cyclical patterns. Deep down, we're miserable because we're holding on to something and justifying something that we shouldn't. Is that you? Yes, or so well. We always ask ourselves, okay, God's word is transformational. We come through God's word. God speaks through his word. So what? How does this transform my thinking? How does this transform my actions? The question I want to leave with you today is, what sin in your camp needs dealing with? Again, we've all been in that position where we're waiting on God, feel like I've got to take it into my own hands, get into sin, and then we start justifying it. What is it for you? Is it anger? Every time you get angry, it's, it's deflecting, it's minimizing it, it's, well, they made me angry. Is it an attitude? You just have an attitude. You feel like you can't shake it, but you've never really actually taken responsibility for it. Is it an envy? Is it a purity issue? Is it a relationship? Not just romantic relationship, but a friendship that you know you shouldn't have because it takes you away from God. Is it a substance? What's sin in the camp, in your camp, needs dealing with? Thanks again for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, would you give it a share? It goes a long way. Also, don't forget to subscribe if you haven't yet. Hey, God has something for you today. Go after it. Blessings. Blessings.